Father, we just ask for help as I heard another pastor say this week, all of us are looking for validation. All of us, every single person that can hear my voice right now is, is wanting to be validated. We want to be affirmed. We want someone to say that they love us or that they care about us or that we're doing a great job. And so, Father, we chase after so much validation in this world. We, we work hard to, to be the valedictorian, or we work hard to be the salutatorian, or we, we work hard to be the best at work, or, or we work out all day every day at the gym, or, or we work hard to make lots of money, or we work hard to, to get fame, and, and we just we try so hard to find people that will say, good job. And truthfully, we just wear ourselves out waiting for our spouses or our kids or our friends or someone to pat us on the back. So God, we ask that today you would help us with that. And that you would help us to see that what it means to be in Christ is we are validated. We're affirmed. We matter because of you. And we don't always feel that. And some of us are not feeling that right now. And so we ask that your Holy Spirit would blow across our hearts and our minds. And that we would feel the affirmation that comes from being saved. The affirmation that comes from being born again. The affirmation that comes from being yours. If we are your children, then we are validated. And we are affirmed. Give us hope. And give us joy in that truth today. We ask in the great name of Jesus. Amen. So have you ever been asked a strange question? I mean, just something, you know, really odd and, and really weird. Well, Lisa Gregory of the Carroll County Times noted that Chris Nussbaum gets asked a lot of weird, strange questions. Chris is from Tannytown, Maryland, and he was born blind. One of those strange questions he got one day was on the school bus. He was on a school bus, and, and a middle schooler asked him, hey, um, do blind people get married? And Chris said, well, of course they do. I, I know people who are married, and, and they have kids. Yes, of course, blind people get married. The middle schooler had a follow-up question. He said, well, how do you know if she's pretty or not? And this is Chris's response. I may not know what she looks like on the outside, but I do on the inside, and that's what really counts. That answer is a, a good example of the kind of person that Chris Nussbaum seems to be. He's 19 now, and among other things, he is a very talented writer. He's a gifted musician, a gifted singer. He has his own internet radio show called The Blind Side that he hosts and runs. He is a leader and advocate with the National Federation of the Blind. He's even been on Nickelodeon on an episode of a TV show. And 
after nine weeks of training at the Louisiana Center for the Blind, this Thursday, Chris starts college. He'll be only the second blind person to ever attend Lynchburg College in Virginia. But perhaps the greatest of all of his accomplishments in his 19 years comes from someone who's known him since the first grade. His buddy, Ari Lipka, says this, everyone should have a friend like Chris. Helen Keller was struck with an acute illness when she was 19 months old. That illness left her blind and deaf. Later in life, she said this, I would rather walk with a friend in the dark than alone in the light. Do you feel alone today? Are you in a season of life where you feel like nobody knows what you're going through? That nobody really cares about you or, or cares about what you're going through? Do you feel like you're kind of in the darkness now? David was king of Israel about 3,000 years ago, and, and he felt that exact same way sometimes himself. And he found a friend. And his friend wasn't just somebody who would walk with him in the dark. He found a friend that never abandoned him. A friend that constantly poured kindness and loyal love into his life. So who was his friend? Well, let's find out. Listen to Psalm 23, verse 6. Surely, goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life. The nuclear football is a large leather briefcase that contains options and capabilities for a nuclear strike. Wherever the president goes, the nuclear football goes. And if the president is ever incapacitated, there is an identical second nuclear football that goes with the vice president. So wherever they go, the nuclear footballs go. And the, the footballs are carried by designated military aides. Author and journalist Ronald Kessler says that if the president and the vice president are staying in a hotel room, the aide and the nuclear football are in an adjoining room. If they're on an elevator, the aide and the football are on the elevator. The Secret Service has standing orders that if the president or the vice president are, are ever attacked, that they are supposed to evacuate the aide and the nuclear football too, not just the protectee. Wherever the president or the vice president goes, this, this football has to be there. It's been going on that way for years and years and years, for decades. Retired Navy Vice Admiral John Stufflebeam said this, Whoever has the duty as the military aide to the president is responsible for physical custody of the football and ensuring its access to the president 24-7 within a matter of seconds. It's very serious and they're very good at it. Goodness and loving kindness are kind of like spiritual footballs. Wherever a Christian goes, they go. Goodness and loving kindness are, are there 24-7. But the difference they have with the nuclear football is they don't need seconds to get to the protectee. They are instantly available. They are instantly ready. They never leave. They are always pursuing. And where does this goodness and this loving kindness, where does it come from? Well, it comes from the good shepherd. It comes from the good friend. It comes from the best friend. It comes from the one true God of the universe. 
goodness, love, and kindness have been called twin sheepdogs. And that they're always on duty. They're always there. They're always looking after who they are protecting. These twin sheepdogs, they, they never stray from caring for God's people. They're always there. Last week we looked at the sheepdog of goodness, and this week we look at loving kindness. But before we try to define it, let's be sure we, we catch the word that David kind of kicks it off to us in. He says what? He says, surely. Surely. With, this is a, a word of confidence, great confidence, great hope. There's a, there's a lot of authority behind the word surely. He knows it's, it's coming from somewhere. And what David is saying to me and to you is this. He says, I am certain of this. I am sure of this. I am absolutely confident. There is no doubt. And what is he so sure about? Well, he's sure about the loving kindness of God. Some Bibles translate this as mercy. And, and the picture of this, this loving kindness, this mercy, it's, it's really beyond our imagination. It's, it's loving kindness, it's mercy, it's, it's steadfast love, it's loyal love, it's undeserved love. It's love that you weren't looking for. It's love that you weren't seeking after. It's love that you can't purchase. It's unbelievable, astounding love. No matter how you describe it, it is exceedingly beautiful. I mean, can you imagine someone saying, love and kindness? No. No, I'm good. I don't need any of that. I'm just going to stay right here in my misery. I don't, I don't need any love and kindness. Can you imagine someone saying, mercy? No, no. I don't need any mercy. I'm, I'm fine right here in my crock pot of stress and guilt and shame. I'm just going to sit right here and keep simmering. No, I don't need any mercy. Now, it's crazy, Right? This, this kind of love is, is amazing. We should desire it. We should thirst for it. And even if we don't know, we are thirsting for it. We're hungry for it. We, we want this kind of love. Loving kindness and mercy, they're, they're undeserved favor, and they're designed to help us with misery, and especially the misery of sin. Anybody face any misery or any sin, even just this past week? Any bullies on the first, day, first week of school, I guess? Any uh, unexpected financial expenses on the first week of school? Anybody have a stress-filled marriage? Anybody have a stress-filled job? Anybody have a stress-filled news feed? Anybody have some stress over some health issues? I would say most of us experience misery and sin every week. Life in general is full of misery and sin. And there's only one cure. Only one cure for the kind of sin and misery that all of us face all the time in life. And that cure is not better kids. And that cure is not a better marriage. The cure is not a better job or a better house or a better car. It's not a better school, not a better church, not a better government. Now the only cure for the kind of sin and mercy that we, sin and misery that we deal with every week, the only cure is mercy. There is no other cure for sin and misery, only mercy. This is what Peter said, 1 Peter 3, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to His great mercy, has caused us to be born again. The greatest mercy in the universe is to be born again. What does that mean? What does it mean to be born again? Well, the nuclear football 
is designed to help launch a strike. The spiritual football of loving kindness and mercy is designed to launch a rescue. What do you need to be rescued from? Well, you need to be rescued from sin, rescued from misery, rescued from death. Apostle Paul, writing to some folks at a place called Ephesus, said this, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Before a person is born again, they are spiritually dead. If you are not born again, you are right now helpless and hopeless and desperately in need of being rescued. But here's the thing, you can't make yourself be born again. You you can't give yourself spiritual birth. So, So how does it happen? Well, Peter says that it happens according to the great mercy of God. That the, the mercy of God invades the soul of a dead sinner and brings life to that dead sinner. The, The mercy of God, the rich and and awesome and undeserved mercy of God, it quickens the heart of a dead sinner to hear the gospel and to embrace the gospel and to respond to the gospel. And that dead sinner, when they are born again, they respond by putting their faith in Christ and in Christ alone. And how does all this happen? How does God quicken a person's heart to the gospel. How is a person born again? I don't know. I I don't know. God doesn't give us a, a theoretical, cosmological, quantum mechanical theorem to satisfy a human answer to the specifics of how a person has been born again. So how do we know? How do you know if you've been born again? I've given you this illustration before, but but if you were to come up to me and say, hey, Dale, how do you know that you were born? Well, I'd pull out my license. Actually, I keep it here. I'd pull out my license, and I'd show it to you right there. See, that's my name. There's my birthday. See, I'm born. I know I'm born. Here it is right here. That's dumb, all right? If you ask me how do I know that I'm born, I'm going to say, I'm talking to you. (laughs) I'm breathing. I'm alive. The reason I know that I was born was not because my license says it, but my body is saying it right now. I'm alive. So how do you know if you've been born again? Well, it's on a card in the office. I'm pretty sure, you know, down at the church, there's a box checked, and it says something about me shaking the preacher's hand. So, yeah, that's how I know. No! No, that's dumb. No, I know I'm born again because I'm spiritually alive. I sing amazing grace and I go, I once was blind, but now I see. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I once knew that Jesus died on the cross and and it was a story to me, but now I know that the cross tells me that my sin was paid for and satisfied completely. We know we are born again because we are alive in Christ. Because the great mercy of God has caused us to be born again. David Pallison is a counselor and author. He wrote a letter to the 13-year-old son of one of his friends one time. So middle schoolers, high schoolers, listen to this. I mean, and everybody else too, you know. David Pallison, this is what he wrote, just a portion of what he wrote in the letter. Don't ever forget 
God is merciful to you. Mercy is who He is. Mercy is what He does. Mercy is what you need. And then He says this, God's mercy is not a theory, a bunch of words or stories from a long time ago. It is the reality upon which your life depends. And he says this, mercy is a reality that anchors you into the life and death of Jesus Christ. He has come for us. He has come for you. You need help from outside yourself. Ask for help. Ask for help. If you've never asked for this help, if you've never asked for the mercy of God, we would plead with you to, to ask. Listen, if you're here and and you are not a Christian, I want you to know at least three people have prayed for you this morning. There's probably more, but at least three that I know of have prayed that today God would quicken your heart, quicken your mind, quicken your soul to the truth of the gospel, and that you would be captured in salvation with Jesus. Ask for help. And if you do ask for help, if you do plead for this mercy, what's, what's the benefit package? What, what comes with it? Jehovah God gives this promise to those who repent and ask for the help of mercy. This is what he said. Psalm 91, verse 14. Because he has loved me, meaning the person who's asked for help and pleaded for mercy, because he has loved me, therefore I will deliver him. I will set him securely on high Because he has known my name. Verse 15. He will call upon me and I'll answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. Verse 16. With a long life, I will satisfy him and let him see my salvation. That's a promise right there. Those are amazing promises. Don't miss them. Deliverance. Rescue, security, honor, everlasting life, salvation, satisfaction. That is an amazing collection of promises all together. And guess what? You'll never get those promises from your husband. And you'll never get those promises from your wife. And you'll never get those promises from your kids or your grandkids or your parents or your best friend or your girlfriend or your boyfriend or your doctor or your lawyer or your pastor or your president or your politician or your school or your church or your government. None of those promises come from anywhere but the one who is holy, holy, holy. And those promises only come from the one who was and is and is to come. That's the only place these astounding promises come. So, so, love God. Call upon His name. Ask for help. Plead for this mercy. Someone might say, I did. I did. I asked God for help. I asked him for mercy, and he did not give me any. A distinct part of the mercy of God, this loving kindness, is also kind of known as as pity. Now, this isn't clubber lang pity, right? It's not I pitied a fool, right? It's a different kind of pity. This is a merciful pity. 
not the kind that, that mocks people or, or feels bad for them. This pity refrains from giving punishment that is right and just and due. This pity looks at someone in misery, a person who is hopeless and helpless, dead in their sin, desperately in need of rescue, and this pity from heaven says this, no more misery. No more misery. I'm going to give you mercy. That's what loving kindness does. That's what mercy does. That's what this pity does. But how do we know that? How do we, how do we feel it? How do, we, how do we know that this pity, this loving kindness, this mercy can really erase the deepest misery in a person's life? This is what Paul said to some folks at a place called Corinth. 2 Corinthians 1.20, For as many as are the promises of God, in Him they are yes. Therefore also through Him is our amen to the glory of God through us. Here's what that means. If you're a Christian, if you're a true believer and follower of Jesus, and you find yourself in a moment where you say, or you pray, or you cry, or you scream, or you mumble, or you murmur, God, you did not give me mercy. Please know that the voice of the gospel delights to say back to you, yes, he did. <laughs> yes, yes, he did give you mercy. Look to Jesus. Look at Jesus. Every promise is yes in Jesus. Every promise. See, if you're a believer, it is impossible for you not to have the mercy of God. Even if your prayer for mercy is not answered the way that you wanted it to be answered, you still have mercy. You still have unrequested love. You still have undeserved love. You still have undeniable love. You still have unbreakable love. How is that possible? I shared the words of a song last Sunday. I, I think they're worth a few more seconds of us marinating on them. It goes like this. Our Savior displayed on a criminal's cross. Darkness rejoiced as though heaven had lost. But then, Jesus arose with our freedom in hand. That's when death was arrested and my life began. Dear Christian, you always have mercy. You always have mercy because Jesus arose with your freedom in His hand. It is impossible for you not to have mercy. But here's the thing. How do we feel that's true? How do we get that out of the pulpit and the church and the sanctuary on Sunday morning? How does that moment get into real life? James Hastings was a minister in Scotland. He died in 1922, so 
my math right before any of us were born. He seemed to have a really good grip on what mercy feels like in real life. This is what he said. She, mercy, has a noiseless step and a soft, gentle touch and a voice that falls like music on the dull ear of sorrow. Her favorite haunts are chambers of sickness or prison cells or closets where souls groan in secret under heavy loads of sin and woe. None of us have been there, right? He goes on. And there, in those moments, in her mild accents, she bids the guilty be of good cheer because their sins are forgiven. And with her strong, though gentle hand, lifts the burden from the heavy laden. And with her fragrant ointment, tenderly heals the broken in heart and binds up their wounds. And I love what he says here. She is seen more frequently in the shade than in the sunshine. And she exercises her ministry most when some darkly brooding sorrow hangs over the individual or the family or the nation's heart. More than a hundred years ago, he wrote that. <laughs> Ever feel like there's a darkness hanging over the heart of our nation? Here's the thing, though. Even though we feel that way, even though it happens for some of us, it feels like more often than other times, please know this. The mercy of God in the middle of all of this darkness has not lost an ounce of power. It has not lost any of its light. In fact, right now, in the darkness, mercy is screaming loud and clear. And to the believer, mercy is cheering them on with this. Jesus arose with your freedom in His hand. And to the unbeliever, to the non-Christian, mercy is screaming constantly over and over again. Here is love. Here is grace. Here is mercy. Here is salvation. Here is satisfaction. Come to Jesus and live. Come to Jesus and live. Just a quick challenge, a quick reminder from Jesus. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 7, blessed are the merciful. Happy and blessed and joyful are those who have been shown mercy. But there's a, a catch with how the Bible teaches the mercy that we receive. If you've been given mercy, then you show mercy. That, that's how the gospel math works. John MacArthur once said this, if you are not merciful, there's a good possibility that you are not a Christian. Listen, none of us are perfect, all right? We're never gonna get everything right, so just go ahead and ditch that idea. But think about the normal, most consistent pattern of your life. Think about what your spouse or your kids or your grandkids or your best friends or the people you work with or, or your buddies, who, whoever it is that is around you the most, what would they say are the most consistent patterns of your life? And here's the thing. If the most consistent patterns of your life are hate, prejudice, 
criticism, complaining, grumbling, entitlement, demanding your way, expecting everyone to meet your expectations for everything all the time, if that is the most consistent pattern of your life, then you are not associated with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you can look throughout every word that Jesus says and it will be consistent that that is true. People who have been shown mercy, they show mercy. We're not perfect. We won't always do it. But would anyone say that we're a merciful person? Would they say that we show mercy to others? Would they see that we show loyal love to others? Jesus said, blessed are the merciful, and those who have been shown mercy show mercy. Now, this wasn't David's, you know, one-hit wonder with mercy, okay? It wasn't a one-time thing. David, he, he experienced this loving kindness from God over and over again. See, mercy, the mercy of God, it pursues you. It, it chases after you. It's, it's always coming after you. It never fails. It never stops. Its motor never quits running. And that's fantastic news because the mercy of God will never, ever fail or forsake you, especially when you lose something. J.I. Packer has written over 300 books. He's probably best known for his book, Knowing God. If you have never read Knowing God, then I would encourage you to make a New Year's in August resolution and start it soon and read it slow. Just read a page a day. Christmas before last, macular degeneration struck its final blow on him and, and he was no longer able to read or to write. So for the last 20 months, he hasn't been able to read or write. He still has a little bit of peripheral vision, but maybe at this point all that's gone. In an interview with a guy named Ivan Mesa, he was asked about this experience of losing his eyesight and the ability to read and write. And this is what he said. God knows what he's doing. God knows what he's up to. And I've had enough experiences of his goodness in all sorts of ways not to have any doubt about the present circumstances. Why would I doubt God now when he's proven himself over and over and over? And then he says this. The author of Ecclesiastes has taught me that it is folly to suppose that you can plan life and master it. And you will get hurt if you try. You must acknowledge the sovereignty of God and leave the wisdom to him. All right, if you're over 70, lend me your ears. Actually, if you're over 20, lend me your ears. That's probably better. This is what he says. Ecclesiastes tells me now what it told me 40 years ago. You get old. And getting old means the loss of faculties and powers you had when you were younger. And that's what he says about that. And that is is the way God prepares us to leave this world for a better world to which he's taking us. Heaven came down and glory filled my soul to remind me this is not heaven. My life is there. That is my destination. Okay? If you're in middle school, if you're in high school, lend me your ears. For that matter, everybody else. 
Packer goes on. The message of Ecclesiastes 12 is this. Get right with God as early in life as you can. Remember the Creator in your days of youth. Don't leave it until sometime in the future when you're not likely to be able to handle it well at all. You know what that means? It means as we get older, we don't like someone telling us that we sin. We don't like being told we're a sinner. We're responsible. We have jobs. We have mortgages. Don't tell me who I am. That's what happens as we get older. But when we're younger, there's such an opportunity to hear the truth and the glory and the beauty of God. And he's right. Ecclesiastes says that deeply. But this is what he said about being now 91 years old. When you walk with God, there are moments when he gives you special delight. I want to do it. Just raise your hand if that makes any sense to you. Have you had those moments? It's It's that moment of special delight where the Lord is my shepherd and I know it right now. When you walk with God, there are moments when he gives you special delight and especially deep sense of peace and pleasure in being his child. Well, those things have happened to me. And this is what he says about maybe losing all of his eyesight. The answer for me, would I be upset about that, would be no. I think I could learn to live without any of the sights I've ever seen. Crazy talk. Why in the world would he say that? What motivates him to say that? This is what. I have nothing striking to report about my Christianity. I don't have this fantastic story. I don't have this amazing thing that causes people to fall out of their pews and and raise their hands and be amazed. This is what he said. I have nothing striking to report. Steady advance. I believe into the realization of the reality of all that the Bible talks about, all the realities, I mean the experience of communion with God. What he's saying is this, the only story I have to tell at 91 is the Lord is my shepherd. And I shall not want, and I have no other story to tell, that one's enough. And he says this, it's been steady, and I thank God for that. At 91, without the ability to read or write, all Packer is saying is this, I have been born again according to the great mercy of God, and that mercy is all I need. It's all I need. So, dear Christian, surely, surely, Because of Jesus, goodness and loving kindness and mercy will follow you all the days of your life. And God's people said, Amen.